0: Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we'll be looking at the flowers of Floodplain Meadows, finding out about the starved wood's edge and hearing about the latest Wildflower Hour challenge, to look at the leaves. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. You don't have to know anything about wildflowers, you just need to go out and look for some, then post them for the rest of the Wildflower Hour community to identify. We work with and promote a number of organisations, and this week I'm very happy to tell you that the Species Recovery Trust has agreed to be one of our partners. To find out about the really important work that this trust does, I had a chat with Don Price, who runs the trust, about one of the plants it is trying to conserve, the strangely named Starved Wood Sedge. So Dom, what is the Starved Wood Sedge? It sounds like a very unhappy
1: plant. <laughs> it does it's an unfortunate name for it so it's a sort of fairly standard sedge like all sedges are they're essentially a more sort of tussocky slightly denser tougher um graminoid than the true grasses wood sedge because it only grows in in woodland and unfortunately it is probably it's certainly at some point in the recent past it has been one of the rarest plants in the uk
0: where do you find it
1: now so it's now only got two native sites left. One of them is just um off the edge of the Cheddar Gorge, and the other one is in the town of Godalming in Surrey. So pretty spread out. And like a lot of these rare things, you you look at the map and you think, oh, how do, you know why those two places? I suspect there was more of it. I don't think it was ever terribly common, but it is now at just those two native sites, plus a handful of um reintroduction sites which we've created recently.
0: What sort of soil does it grow on? It sounds like if it's Cheddar Gorge and Godalming, I mean, it's quite sandy.
1: No, I don't. They're pretty just sort of normal sites, he says, in a terribly unscientific way. I, I, I don't <laughs> think there's any particularly significance of the soil. I mean, it's off the main kind of gorge itself. Um it's just sort of fairly normal ash woodland edge of ash woodland so there's nothing particularly special about the habitat the key thing is is that like a lot of these rare woodland species it needs either glades or rides and i think the reason it's lost from so many sites is so many woodlands have have recently just become terribly overgrown and dark and uh, can be quite hostile places for a lot of plant life
0: and so, what are you doing to conserve it? Are you trying to just keep maintain it at those two sites, or are you trying to reintroduce it at other potential sites?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so both of those. So the, the main thrust has been. Um looking after those two sites and this is work. i mean I've, I've been doing this for about 15 years now but i've 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 taken on the mantle of this from lots of previous organizations and individuals who have worked on it so every year we go to those sites and we just try and keep the glades open we sort of try and do it quite gently we don't want to sort of go in and, and dramatically create huge open areas um about five years ago we did some tree felling at the cheddar site so that sort of opened that one up a lot the converse thing of tree felling of course as soon as you take the canopy out you then get a massive growth of brambles and all the stuff underneath um so it's really sort of following up with that but we just go every year we clear around the plants themselves and then each year we try and widen out the available habitat by a few meters at a time so there's a lot of work on those two sites um and as well as that because we felt when things get down to two sites you're in pretty sort of perilous state in terms of imminent extinction so we felt quite strongly that we should try and create some extra sites as well Uh, and where might they be or is it secret no it's not terribly secret so um one of them is in the grounds of charterhouse um you know the very posh school uh which is actually it did grow in the grounds there until the mid 50s and there's a sort of interesting anecdote that they think those woods were being worked a lot in the pre-war period and the people who were doing it simply either didn't return from the war or by the time they came back you know, the world was a, was a, already a different place and the role of sort of traditional woodsman was not there anymore. So those woods became overgrown and and it was lost from there. We've got another site in Dorset where we've reintroduced it um just this year. And there it went. Well, the last record was from 100 years ago, but we imagine probably similar. It was just the woods not being worked anymore and then there's another site which was actually created by the Somerset Wildlife Trust a few years ago um which is it's been interesting because it actually disappeared from there and it was found there two years ago so we're now managing that one so we've sort of got it up to about five sites now which is a slightly more comfortable number to deal with but it's still very challenging you, you do all the all the management and everything you feel is the right thing for the plant and then you go back the next year and they've you know it's still badly declining at some sites and we're, we're trying lots of different things to see if we can buck that trend.
0: Now why are you bothering to do this? It's potentially not the sort of rare plant like for instance I don't know the lady slipper orchid that is going to attract the general public in crowds. Um, So why bother conserving it? Why not just let nature take its course and let it decline if it wants to?
1: Yeah well I think the thing is there's so many things where this issue comes up it's not really nature taking its course so the natural way of things is that there would have been large herbivores creating these these clearings in woodlands you know woodlands would have been such a different place because of the amount of of large animals living in them and then of course in more recent times woodlands would have been Um, an amazingly busy kind of landscape full of people working. I mean, essentially, woodlands were the source of so many materials. It's the sort of medieval equivalent of going down to your local DIY store. You know, if you needed to fix a fence or fix a wall or do something in your house, you'd go to your woodland and you'd select a tree and fell it. Um, And it's only, you know, in, in recent times, this has really, really changed in, you know, what I would argue is a very unnatural way. So we, humanity has... We've blocked so many of these natural processes. And also, you know, there would have been animals moving from one site to the other, moving the seeds around. And again, we've blocked that. We've created a countryside, which is such a sort of impermeable landscape. So I kind of feel like, you know, essentially we've we've really mucked it up for this plant. So there's a slight moral duty for us to do it. The, the other thing about Star of and you're absolutely right, you know, it's no orchid. Um, but interestingly, it does have the largest seeds or they're, they're called utricles it's the posh name in sedges it has the largest utricles of any native sedge they are absolutely massive and you know if, if you're if you've ever seen a sedge normally the seeds are essentially sort of grass like they're quite fine sort of things you can sprinkle onto your palm um and the starved wood sedge seed is is a thing to behold it's really quite impressively large so that makes it rather a sort of specialty um, as far as we see it and and the fact it doesn't attract the, the thousands of people which orchids does kind of of makes it a bit easier I think I'd be a lot more cagey about those locations with you if it, if it was an orchid.
0: And what do Charterhouse School make of the fact that you're trying to reintroduce the starved wood sedge in their grounds?
1: Yeah I mean they, they love it because it's it sort of formed an interesting part of the, the story and the heritage of the school and we um, it's really nice actually because each time we go there to do the management we get um, all the sort of various biology classes from different parts of the school come down uh, and we get a chance to talk to them I and mean, it, it's really good, you know. It's it's a it's kind of a tough gig because you stand there next to a sedge, often in winter time when we're there doing the management, where it's when it's not at its peak, and you can slightly see the sort of glazed look on their faces when they first come down and see it and they're probably thinking as you've just said there you know why on earth would you bother um, to do this but then you know you explain to them the rarity of it and you know really for them it is probably the rarest plant they will ever see and the whole thing about biodiversity and you know this current the sixth mass extinction which we're living in at the moment and how you know it's species like this which are creating that mass extinction I mean they obviously there's things like white rhino which are on on the brink and we're losing but actually the mass extinction it's not made of of, of rhinos and whales it's made of things like starved wood sedges and these obscure species and it's just the amount we're losing so um yeah it's a really good chance to sort of talk talk to people and you know actually stand next to a species which may go extinct and explain about species extinction so i yeah i really enjoy going there for kind of a chance to talk to a different audience about The whole extinction thing.
0: Do you think the general public understands the scale of the extinction that our native flora is facing? As you say we're very aware of anything that's featured on a David Attenborough programme, but that tends not to be anything that is wild in this country.
1: No, and I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, this is one of the big things when we when we started the Species Recovery Trust was sort of putting this message out there that, I mean, yeah, extinction rates in, in the rainforest and savannah are extremely high, but they're absolutely happening in this country as well. And I think often people aren't that aware of it or they just see it as, well, I don't know, you know, it's not quite as exotic and some of the species we're losing aren't, aren't quite as exciting as the ones you see on the television but then it's it's just as important and i think when when people do realize that this is happening on their on their doorstep i think they do feel as strongly about it and of course the nice thing with these species is is there's something you can do something about it and certainly with our work we've been really sort of reaching out to try and get people particularly who live locally to the sites to take on the monitoring of the sites um and there's lots of people who've got involved with that and it's it's really sort of profoundly made a big change for them because they're now, you know, for one day a year they come out and they count these things and they can say to their friends, actually, you know, I'm involved in this fight against global extinction and, yeah, I'm just wandering down to a local woodland near me and and counting some grass-looking-like stuff. I think when people realise, they do, you know, sort of put it all together and think, yeah, this extinction, it's it's not something happening in faraway places, it is something happening here and now.
0: Thanks, Dom, for feeding us with tales of the starved wood sedge. Now, woodlands aren't the only location that humans have, up until very recently, been working in and creating habitats for wildflowers. Floodplains are another really important habitat for some of our most beautiful plants. But these meadows are under attack in a number of ways. They're being built on, or aren't being managed properly so that scrub takes over from grassland. And there is some disquiet about whether they should be managed at all. Emma Rotheroe works for the Floodplain Meadows Partnership, so I asked her to explain why we should bother working so hard on these habitats. So Emma, why are Floodplain Meadows so important as habitats for wildflowers?
2: Well, floodplain meadows are um, the kind of floodplain meadows that we are talking about, have often been managed in the same way for hundreds of years. And in some cases, we have recorded evidence that they've been managed for a thousand years, particularly the Oxford meadows, um, where there's plenty of archive evidence to show that they were being managed with a hay cut and aftermath grazing uh, a thousand years ago. So
0: a lot of these flowers have evolved alongside human activity,
2: they've well they had they have come together as an assemblage because of human activity all of the um individual plant species would have been around and about but not in the um, same plant assemblages as we see them in floodplain meadows and a lot of them are just very common species so typically things like knapweed or oxide daisy um, species that you see all over the place the reason that floodplain meadows are so amazing from a botanical perspective is because they are so species rich so in one meter square at the very best sites we might record 40, 40 individual different species in just one meter so that's and that's a really incredibly diverse mix of wildflowers and all of those 40 species might be really common species but the fact that they're all living together in one tiny little space is what makes them really special botanically of course there are some uh, there are some rarities as well but it's more about the species diversity that's what makes them um so incredibly interesting and beautiful of course to to look at and what do you do at the Floodplain Meadows
0: Partnership?
2: Well, we are a mix, actually, of academics and uh, conservation organisations and education organisations. So um, we are interested in understanding how those plant communities are so very diverse, and what what conditions make them the most species rich that they can be, and their species diversity is. A complete reflection of their management and their hydrology, um, the flood regime that they've experienced in the past, in the previous few years, the amount of soil fertility that there is, and the timing of the hay cut. So, all of those things combine to make the plant community that you then see. So, it's really amazing to be able to go into a field, into a wildflower meadow, and look at the plant community and say, ah, well, it's, this has been cut later than. Is typical, or this has had a flood in the last three years, or this has had, um, this has had an increase in soil fertility from probably from a combination of a flood and a late cut, and that's why you're seeing the species that you're seeing. So, one of the things that I find really fascinating about floodplain meadows. I guess a lot of the landscape is that you can you can ch- chart the management history through the plants that you identify. Because we know so much about what the different species um, can tell you on a floodplain meadow, whether, whether they reflect a wetter soil conditions or drier soil conditions, for example, um, then you can start to read the history of that site through the plants. And so tell me a bit about some of these
0: particularly special floodplain species There must be some that just bring you joy whenever you see them.
2: (laughs) They all bring me joy. (laughs) <laughs> um the real the real classic species um that is very typical of um, a floodplain meadow is a plant called great burnet which isn't a common plant in the wider countryside it's one of the specialists in floodplain meadows you very very occasionally see it elsewhere but it's really uncommon um and it's a relative of the salad burnet so if you can picture a salad burnet with its little crinkly edged leaves um, and its little tiny sort of uh, flower heads well great burnet is like that but bigger so um it's got a much more robust flower head which is a really deep claret colour and then much much bigger leaves and it it can grow like the rest of the hay crop it'll grow up to a metre or so tall in in nicely fertile sites and we we think that it can grow as a, a very big Clone, So you might have a particular plant that might be many, many, many years old and it just spreads as it gets older and older. So that's a real kind of classic indicator of a floodplain meadow. And if we if we see that species on a, on a site that isn't widely recognised as a classic species rich floodplain meadow, then you know that you've got good soil conditions and um, you've got good soil structure and you've got the right water regime for something that could be more species rich. Because the the species diversity in the meadow will be largely dependent on um, the soil structure. So you won't get um, a good diversity of plants in a poorly structured soil or a compacted soil. But you've got much more potential for it if the soil is well structured.
0: Are there any floodplain plants that are particularly endangered?
2: Well, I suppose the classic rarity of floodplain meadows is the head fritillary, which everybody was will probably be familiar with. There's always been this question mark about its nativeness if that's something that's of concern. We don't know the answer to that. It's certainly been in the UK for hundreds of years um, and it seems to be very happy in the floodplain meadow situation. It's, it's a rare plant. Um, it's only found on about 27 sites in the UK. And there's one site called North Meadow in Wiltshire, which is a national nature reserve, which is um, estimated to contain 80% of the UK population. So it's it's not a widely spread plant, although it used to be more widely spread much like floodplain meadows used to be more widely spread but the floodplain situation just really suits it so the seeds that it uh, that it distributes are very light and can float on water and can even germinate floating in water actually it seems to benefit from bare patches left after floods have receded in which to germinate and it needs to set seed before the hay it is cut and the hay cut happens at about the right time for it to set seed um so it just seems to really benefit from that floodplain situation
0: and there's recently been a little bit of criticism of how floodplain meadows are managed. George Monbiot, the Guardian columnist, was very upset when he recently visited, I think it was Chimney Meadows, and he said it looked very bleak. Is this an artificial system of management, and should we actually be allowing some of the, the scrubbier plants to take over?
2: Well, it is an artificial system of management in as much as it is a um, an agricultural system of management, if that's artificial. The whole system um is based around getting a hay crop with which to feed stock over winter so before agricultural intensification and 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 industrialization it was absolutely essential for uh, for people to be able to feed horses cows sheep um, throughout the winter months because they totally relied on those on those animals for all sorts of things, obviously. So floodplain meadows were so highly valued because they were productive, very productive hay crops. And they're productive hay crops because they sit within floodplains, which flood. The flood brings in silts, the silts bring in nutrients, and that's what gives you a, um, a really productive hay crop. Obviously, in the winter, when you'd expect them to be sitting wet, you can't really use them for anything other than a bit of grazing, um, usually into the latter end of the year. But even grazing animals would then be taken off and put somewhere higher and drier. Um, so that you don't damage the soil so inevitably if you go in the middle of winter to a a classically managed floodplain meadow you'll be looking at something that's been managed in that way in the winter for possibly a thousand years it's doing what it does in the winter it's accommodating floods it's um, accumulating nutrients um, and it's not doing anything else very much But um, wading birds and wintering wildfowl will use them as as feeding areas Um, but you won't see obviously very many very many um, of the exciting plants. I don't think you would want to give them up for areas of scrub because certainly in terms of the distribution of what what we have left of floodplain meadows, um, we're looking at less than 1500 hectares, which is a tiny space um, in the context of the wider British countryside. So I wouldn't choose an area that becomes abandoned over a um, a managed floodplain meadow, um, not for any money, because the the benefit that you get from the from the management gives you that wonderful species rich meadow in uh, that you see in April, May, June, um, and into July, as well as forming the basis of an agricultural system.
0: And you mentioned wading birds, but presumably floodplain meadows aren't sort of ecological deserts, aside from the flowers and visiting. But presumably, they are still a good habitat for invertebrates, for mammals.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're a they're a huge resource for pollinators in the in the summer, and there are some species of invertebrates that are adapted that have adapted their life cycle around the the hay the hay system. Um, and then, of course, you get all the smaller um, seed eating birds that come across and use them. And then in the winter, the sort the wildfowl. Um, element so they're they're an ecological system if you like um, and the plants are just the, the base the baseline of that
0: and is there a way of reintroducing floodplain meadows can you create new ones or can you only really conserve the ancient ones that are already here
2: no, absolutely. There are ways of recreating them. And if you think about how they have evolved, they've been recreated throughout their history. Um, so um, absolutely, they can be recreated. And there's only, um, some of the ones that we have surveyed um, uh, are documented histories of maybe 200 years old. So we know that you can create something pretty nice in 200 years. Um, we also know you can create something incredibly nice in a thousand years. Um, but we are... At the moment, in the partnership, we are also visiting a lot of floodplain meadow restoration sites um, and trying to see how, um, whether there are any particular methods that are better than others, um, and what seems to be more successful at, at restoration. And there's, there's quite a lot of activity going on. And the typical ways of um, restoring grasslands apply to floodplain meadows. So, you know, spreading green hay on on a field that has been. Uh, part scarified so that there are p- patches of bare earth or spreading commercially brought seed or just changing your management from um, uh grazed pasture year-round grazed pasture to a hay cut and then aftermath grazing um, all of these are ways that people are using to try and increase the diversity of the of the sward and, and there are plenty of examples of of success so um, we're, we're absolutely very keen to encourage people to think about whether um, floodplain meadow could form part of their agricultural system um, and whether they can look for grants to try and help them to do that
0: and is there a wider value to floodplain meadows than the biodiversity? I mean is it something that humans might see their lives enriched or protected by?
2: Yes, I I think they are. I think that um they can be seen as habitats as part of a wider system that contribute towards all of the things that we expect from nature for free. So, because they are on well structured soils, um, they can absorb floodwaters, for example. Um, they can um, assimilate nutrients that are often in excessive amounts in river catchments. So, phosphorus, for example, that are deposited on floodplain meadows in the form of silt, can then be taken up by plants and exported out of the farm gate in the form of the hay crop they can help to um, filter nutrients, they can help to um, accommodate silt deposition, they can, um, obviously they provide a fantastic resource for pollinators. So all of these different things that we as humans expect nature to do for us, we think floodplain meadows do probably more than many other systems. So we're, Quite keen to put the argument that they there should be more of them simply for their wider benefits, not just for their biodiversity value and agricultural value.
0: That was Emma Rothero from the Floodplain Meadows Partnership. And finally, it's time for details of our weekly challenge. Our challenges work alongside the normal wildflower hour hunts for whatever is in bloom, and they encourage you to go a little bit deeper in your knowledge of wild plants and their habitats. This week we don't want you to spend too much time marvelling at the flowers, but to look at their leaves. Leaves are so important for identification but all too often we can end up merely looking at and then photographing the flowers. So whenever you find a flower this week, take a photo of its leaves. They might be lanceolate or sword-shaped or they might be pinnate or palmate. They could be hairy or smooth. They might be toothed, warty, ovate, sessile or compound. And if you don't have a clue what many of those terms mean, don't worry. We will be posting ID tips on the Wildflower Hour website all this week. The most important thing, though, is that you photograph the top and underside of the leaf so that other Wildflower Hour members can have a look and help you. Then post your pictures on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag #LookAtTheLeaves, or in the Wildflower Hour Facebook group. So that's all for this episode. Thanks so much for listening and happy wildflower hunting this week.